everyone. Welcome to the Style That Finds Us podcast. We are excited to have fashion historian Caroline Milbank on our podcast today. She is a fashion historian, author, writer, curator, and appraiser. She has written five books, and they are called Fashion, A Timeline in Photographs, 1850 to Today, Resort Fashion, Style in Sun-Drenched Climates, that sounds fabulous, The Couture Accessory, and Couture the Great Designers, and lastly, New York Fashion. Her Instagram, Joop. Poulat was recently written up in Vanity Fair, Spain as one of the two best fashion history Instagrams anywhere, which we completely agree with. It is extremely informative and we love how you create the content. We are honored to have you on our podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. We are going to Start off by talking about, do you find that studying the fashion of a period of time can give insight into what was happening culturally? Yeah, I've had a, um, a friend of mine has, has said that fashion is a gateway drug to culture, and it is a fantastic way to start digging in, and it connects so easily with what's happening in the arts. Um, I find there's a connection with literature of the period, what's happening in the theater, um, film, just about, um, there's so many different ways you can um, use fashion to look at what's changing in a culture. Technology um, and fashion are much more closely aligned than I would have thought, I mean, going back centuries. Right. So my answer is yes, it's, it's, it's one of the best ways to look at any other time because everybody wears clothes, so everybody can use that as a kind of lever for understanding. Right. Well, this is something that we struggle with since there are movies, TV, plays, exhibitions at museums, articles, millions of articles. How in the world do you keep up with, with all the content? It's tough. It's tough. <laughs> There's so much. It is so much. It really is. In our earlier discussion, when we would talk to you on the phone, you had mentioned, you know, I was talking about the Roaring Twenties, and you had said, but let's look at the 70s and the 1980s and the Great Depression as times of style evolution that mirrored what was occurring in the world at the time. Can you elaborate about that? Well, to, to start with the, the 1970s, I think it's interesting to look at for us right now because um, the, first of all, Usually a decade of a fashion response, it's a reaction to the decade that happened before it. So the 1970s were reacting to the 1960s. And the 1960s, the end of the decade, was all about bright colors and op art and plastic, like in the movie The Graduate, <laughs> um, the space age, space age exploration. So um, people were wearing silver foil and plastic earrings and plastic boots. And um, the, in the 70s, you see a, a whole swing away from that. And part of it has to do with the fact that women were really entering the um, workforce and, and there was a more, a more serious look in a kind of casual way, but definitely a more serious look that was being embraced, but also is the really beginning of the modern environmental movement and natural fibers and um, not just natural fibers were important um, ecologically, but also that things look natural. So there was a lot of texture and beige and earth tones and um, wooden beads maybe as an accessory or um, the natural look in terms of how women look. They had to um, they had to be fabulous looking like Lauren Hutton, but they had to look as if they hadn't done anything to achieve that. Right. So I see that as uh, as we are thinking right now about how the impact that fashion has on the globe and the environment. Um, I'm just wondering if the 70s has anything to say to us about um, whether we should scale back on using man-made fibers or um, the kinds of things that, as we discussed before, if they end up in landfill, they never disintegrate. Mm -hmm. Oh, gosh, no kidding. As a, yesterday, we were talking to Lola Rikiel. Um, She's going to be on the podcast as well. And it was so interesting talking to her because, you know, both of her grandmothers, 
um, Sonia Riquel was one. And then the other one was, um, is it Tina Bern? No, not Tina Bernstein. Joan, who started Browns in London. Yeah. I didn't know that there was that connection. I didn't either. Can you imagine? Those are her grandmothers. And she talked about how different they are, but were, you know, or I guess Joan is still alive, but what she had learned um, from both of them. And that was a fascinating conversation, listening, you know, learning about her grandmother. Um, and that made me think about the 1970s. And Oh, yeah. I mean, um, people really, um, they really treated Sonia Riquel as, as her, her interchangeable pieces as something to collect. And um, um, it was a, you could, they were a bit of a splurge because they weren't Mm-hmm. incredibly inexpensive but um you could kind of build a, a wardrobe over over years mm-hmm. i was just reading about a, a socialite in the 1970s who would buy several pieces every year and they were all designed to work with the pieces they had already purchased mm-hmm. so um, they felt it was a great way to dress over a period of time and have things that really worked for them and and, and, when, and when women talk about sonia Riquel and and how much they loved wearing her clothes at that time, they really had a personal connection because they were really designed by a woman mm-hmm. who really understood how women want to dress. That's so interesting. And now Lola, her granddaughter, has started a line that we can tell you about another time. Okay. Yeah. Pompon, Pompon yeah. Paris. <laughs> oh, really? Pompon. Mm-hmm. That's a great name. I love that. Yep, she said part of it was because of the tassels, and also Sonia called her pompon, little petit pompon. But also, she used a lot of you know tassels and things, and um, and she grew up in the studio. And then also, she always wanted to be an American cheerleader. Well, it's interesting because the term in French comes from a verb pomponnier, I think it's pronounced, and it means to astonish. Ah. So um, whenever I see pompons in fashion, they're always just an amusing detail that really um, um, adds to, adds that little something. Gosh, definitely. That's really cool. Um, you want me, Okay, so now the other thing you talked about when I brought up the Roaring Twenties, then we talked about the Great Depression. And I love how you're talking about like, you know, it takes a little while for fashion to react to what it's just been through. So I guess that's what happened with the Great Depression. Yeah, it's interesting. On the one hand, um, clothes almost immediately after the stock market crash of 1929 became much more serious looking in a way. The short skirts and the kind of jazzy beaded looks of the 20s gave gave way to longer, um, a longer, narrower silhouette, which was um, simpler and a little more sober feeling. Um, then you also had the influence during the 1930s of Hollywood, which was almost the opposite. It was so much glamour, you could barely stand it. And um, um, it's considered that the the way um, the stars looked in Hollywood films were, were um, a form of escapism for people who could not even afford to eat. Mm. They could look at all the glamorous people. And so the, um, they could, they could enjoy it escape as fashion, but they couldn't wear it. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that um, once the 30s really got going, you start to see um, um, designers coming up with ways to, to make a look last longer so that people could wear it um, year in, year out. And there was a lot of emphasis on on something serviceable, like a dark print dress would be something that wouldn't, a small print um, people wouldn't really notice that you were wearing it year after year, but you could add different collars and wear different accessories to um, make it make it seem like a fresh new look. Mm. Or a coat. Yeah. yeah, coats, jackets. Well, what, what I've always tried to, um, you know, work when I'm working with my styling clients, I've talked to them about, they have so much stuff. You know, so a European designer said to me, a couple of years ago, American women have too much stuff, you know, and, and so I've always talked to them about editing down, but also, you know, buying the best you can, you know, making smart choices so that they will last a long time. And if you take care of them, well, that's what Lola Rikiel was also saying. She has some of her pieces, you know, for grandmothers that are still in great shape because of the quality of the velour, but the, the idea of quality versus quantity and, um, 
sustainability and all these things, we've been hearing them in conversation, but do you think like because of what we're experiencing right now with this pandemic that for, for several reasons, including financial, this might, you know, this paring down of, of what we have um, and taking care of, you know, making more serious choices. Do you think that's going to be something we really see going forward? Well, it's kind of interesting because, um, um, that's what should happen. Right. Um, <laughs> right. Um, I was just reading an article about um, there's a there's human tendency to, after you've done the right thing, like made made a um, donation to an environmental cause, you think it's okay to go for a long drive for no purpose. I mean, there's wow. there's a there can be um, either people will become used to living with less or needing less wow. um, if you don't travel as much or go out as much. You don't have to have the same kind of wardrobe. Um, if you don't travel all the time, you don't need to have all seasons um, ready at the drop of a. Mm -hmm. So there, there might be a bit of that, but um, I'm wondering um, the whole idea of. I think it, I think it's going to be not one thought. I think you, people will want to have some special things that they treasure and keep for for their lifetimes really or were planned to pass down to their daughters. I've had I've had friends tell me over the years that they were saving special things for their, their daughters or their daughters knew that um, that, mm -hmm. that was one attitude towards a splurge, knowing that it would be around for a while. Um, and then I think um, there also has to be a kind of look at what's what's really practical when when people don't go back to the office. What kind of clothes are they going to need for working at home um, in, you know, mm -hmm. for some time? Mm -hmm. um, I, I also think that, there, that the whole idea of buying things that are secondhand, that has just been one of the strongest trends of the past 10 years. And it's funny because it, it really emerged during the 1970s. So when you look back at the 70s and see that's when people started really buying and wearing vintage clothing, you can think that that it, and it was in very much a response to not spending as much money during the recession. Mm. That is very interesting about the seventies. And that, I hadn't thought about that, but that makes sense. We, we did a video at the real, real so, talking about that, you know, well, that's one of the most amazing businesses. And um, it's been fascinating to see um, mm -hmm. how the real, real has developed. I mean, cause there were so many things that were trying to, do that kind of thing, but they really right. took it, took the idea and ran. Boy, did they! Especially, you know, the physical stores. When you go in, I mean, you you feel like you're in a luxury boutique. I mean, you know, it's right. It's really and people people really have a fun experience when they're in those. Right. I mean, they're having a good time. Exactly. That's right. Yeah. It's a candy shop. That's for sure. And everything's not crammed in there together. And they have events and all sorts mm -hmm. of things. So it's called How to Shop Consignment on the Style the Finds YouTube channel. We have great. definitely shopped consignment because before I started my career and working at Barney's and having that discount that a lot of times <laughs> we would go yeah. around in New York City to all the consignment shops. And that was how I started building my work wardrobe because the whole thing about fashion of course you need to look fabulous and you want to be wearing all the designers but you you know you don't get paid that well <laughs> so <laughs> that's a weird juxtaposition yeah, that's how I developed my interest as well buying um it, at starting at things like thrift shops and um you know there would be a, a little rack of clothing at a bazaar at a church or whatnot you could mm -hmm. buy you know, the most exquisite clothes from the 1930s or 40s and oh everyone was wearing them. I have, uh, I have a short story about a consignment shop in New York. Um, they used to, I think it was called Michael's Resale, and they used to put the first three letters of the consigner's name as part of their code number. Uh -huh. I, remember, I remember looking at this gorgeous pink taffeta kind of cape, and it was made out of the exact kind of silk paper taffeta that the only couturier who uses it is Madame Clare. It didn't have a label, but I could tell it was by her. Wow. And I looked at the tag and it said V-R-E, blah, 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 blah. And I thought, that's Diana Vreeland. Gosh. And I, can't, I could kick myself for not having bought it. 
how have people handled times of financial hardships in the past? So, for example, adorning themselves with accessories to enhance a basic outfit or change it up. Yeah, um, I, and you also think about that in terms of Zoom meetings, how accessories could um, mm -hmm. give you a, a, a quick different look for, um, for um, when you're just showing your face or head and shoulders. Um, yeah, that was always, it's, um, that's always been one of the things that very clever dressers do. They um, concentrate on a wardrobe of things to put with their wardrobe. And, um, but now you have the, the issue of, of aspects of accessories becoming sort of luxury collectibles. Mm -hmm. And um, they've become so, so very expensive. Mm -hmm. And they, it's harder to find those at a discount because of online all the online um, organizations all know the prices for everything. So um, where you used to be able to find a great handbag by even Chanel or Hermes at a consignment shop, you would never be able to find that now because everyone, I mean, I say at, at a bargain price, because everyone knows the exact value of all of those pieces. So um, I'm guessing that the um, accessorizing that would be used to change up outfits, um, looking into um, a, a financially depressed period would have to be more uh, sort of unique vintage items as opposed to um, luxury items. What do you think? That makes sense to me. And I, like I have told my clients in the past, if you can create this core wardrobe that, you know, everything fits and it's, you know, it's, it works for your lifestyle, then you can start having fun by, collecting accessories and things that show your personality. So if, you know, we're not going to be traveling a lot, but um, you know, getting special pieces that have a story to tell to where, um, you know, makes you, makes you have a little more fun with your, with your look. Well, do, do you find that people want to find clothes that look good with the jewelry they already have? Do you ever see that? I, I definitely do. And sometimes we do talk about that. You know, we talk about a special piece that they had that they've never been able to figure out how to put it with anything or obviously a scarf or something that someone brought them back. But for sure, the other thing I'd tell them is, you know, let's definitely bring out all your, your, it doesn't even have to be fine jewelry, but your special pieces and let's really incorporate them into your wardrobe. Cause so many people, you know, as a store, someone will just say, well, buy this with this, you know, the stress or whatever. And so they collect all these pieces that they're not really worthy of the look. And, you know, in my opinion, and, and a lot of times in their opinion, they just hang there. So let's really, you know, wear things. If it's, even if it's your grandmother's ring and it's not your style, then let's find a way to, to remake it. So it is something that you wear all the time. And you know. that's a great idea. I think it's, I think um, on the one hand, it's sort of nice to have to open up the cupboard and see some various things that you like and you remember them for this reason or that reason. But right. at the same time, you might as well use them, use what you have. And sometimes they're like, oh, I forgot about this. And they tell me these stories, you know, and I'm like, this is what you need to be wearing. You have a story with this piece, you know, so that is. I the love when fashion has stories, when, pe when, when it's a part of the story people tell about themselves. I totally agree. And, and then you, you know, there's just so many things that, that, that come, positive things that come out of that. So maybe people will start doing that more, you know, um, instead of just buying, 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 buying. Right. Yeah. I feel like each item in your closet, I was thinking at some point we need to do a YouTube video about that. Cause you go into your closet and you're like, okay, this is the dress I wore on the first date. And this is one really fun night. You just have all, you live your life through your closet. You, you can. Sometimes. Right, right. This, yeah, Dia got, that we found this fabulous ostrich little um, bolero jacket by um, Yves Saint Laurent at a, oh gosh, no, it was beyond. At, it was at, in San Francisco, in San Francisco in the Haight-Ashbury area. We had gone wow. for the Met and we had met the guys, the men the Italian, you know, Milanese, well, they weren't really Italian, but they were working, some of them were. They were working with Donatella. 
Versace on the women's wear design team. Right. And they told oh us gosh. that this great spot that they had gotten all these deals. Well, you know, normally when you go find something like that, it's going to be still thousands of dollars. It was not. And so whenever <laughs> she wears that, you know, she feels totally rock and roll straight back to the sixties and seventies and Betty Catrue and everything like that. It's called Wasteland. You must go in San Francisco. <laughs> wow. it's, I will. I, in, in a normal life, I go there every year. So <laughs> I go to San Francisco. So that'd be fun. Yeah, on the Straight from the Versace design team to you. They were <laughs> showing us oh about gosh. dresses they were designing for Lady Gaga and all sorts of things. It's a heady night for sure. <laughs> Talk to us about your opinion of the desire for constant newness in fashion. This is one of the issues that retail they have gotten into and then of course it causes all of these problems mentally and physically etc for the designers yeah that's a tough one because um if, if the if the brain has been changed so much over the past couple of decades that it needs that constant hit of seeing the latest thing um i wonder if it can really be rewired but um the um the, at the same time, that kind of pace of there, there's something new in, in a store that you go to almost every week or every two weeks or every much more frequently than in the past, um, that, that I find that pace is tiring to the consumer um, and confusing. Uh, they don't really understand why winter clothes are for sale in the summer or, you know, those kind of things. And um, as we've already discussed, it's very, um, I think it's um, almost disastrous for the design houses themselves because it's, um, not, it's not sustainable in terms of human energy. Mm -hmm. um, it also might be a reason why there's so many changes at the design homes. So you, I think the consumer also finds that confusing. Well, I thought I liked this <laughs> fashion house, and now where is the person that I liked Where's their work now? I have to find where they're working and switch allegiance to the other fashion house. Yes. That, all of that. All of that is so, so confusing. They don't really have time to be able to create a, their own creative um, direction for the house either, I don't think. But yeah, um, I also think, like for me, when I'm speaking with women, they feel like, well, is this already done? I mean, I just bought it. I paid all this money. Is this not even you know, something people are wearing these days. And, you know, that's another conversation about, you know, trends or, you know, we don't follow trends and all that, but that is another problem with all this newness, you know, it's, it's really, hopefully that will change. Um, okay. So I wanted to talk a little bit about Claire McCardle, and I know I brought up to you about the popover dress because, you know, I learned about it at FIT and I think, you know, so many people know about that particular piece, but I read where you said there, you know, she really was brilliant. There were so many more interesting things that she did. Um, can you tell our audience, because many of them probably don't even know about her at all, um, who she is and how you think her, her ideas might, you know, work today? Well, Claire McCardle is, um, I think, would be on a very short list of almost any, anybody's as for, for being the best American designer of the 20th century. Um, her name isn't widely known in the general um, population because her fashion house didn't keep going after she died. And she died um, shockingly young in her 50s, in the 1950s. So um, it's not a name everybody knows, but um, people who look at fashion really, really, really respond to her designs. And um, the reason they respond to them is because they almost all, almost every single thing she designed looks like you could wear it um, what is now 70 or 80 years later. And that's really quite an achievement. You can say the same thing about um, Chanel's 1920s designs. And mm -hmm. now that I think about it, you could probably say it more often about women's fashion designers' designs because women fashion designers historically designed for for what life is actually like for a woman. Mm -hmm. um, so let's see, what, what are the things that she did? First of all, she, she designed at a price point that was accessible to almost everybody. And we think of that today when um, a fashion designer does a special collaboration with, with 
Target or Zara, mm-hmm. um, but all of her designs were were sort of aimed at everybody. Some of them were more expensive because they were made out of more expensive fabrics, or an evening dress might cost more than a shorts a shorts outfit. But um, that's a big deal that she she wasn't a snob about um, mm-hmm. only wanting to design for the elite. Mm-hmm. Um, she also was very very interested in in making clothes that worked for the changing life that women were leading. And if they were um, working in an office, they might have to go directly from an office to dinner or to a party, which is something that you you continue to read about, how to to slightly change what you're wearing in order to leave the office and go out and not have to bring a whole nother outfit and keep it under your desk, et cetera. I know we just said that no one's ever going back to an office, but that's not the case. No. <laughs> so, so, so what Claire McArdle did um, as early as the mid-1930s was design a group of um, pieces of, that could be worn in different ways. So she, she called them a capsule wardrobe, and uh, five or six pieces would include a halter top, a shirt or top with long sleeves, a long skirt, a knee-length skirt, and maybe a pair of shorts. And the way it, based on the way it looked, you could go out in the halter and the shorts and go um, spend a day, you know, at by the water. You could go out in the long, the halter and the long skirt to a dance. You could go um, in the long sleeve to jacket or top and knee-length skirt to work or to, you know, business meetings. Um, and the, they were also made out of fabrics that you could take care of yourself. So they, whereas the clothes in the haute couture had to be cared for by a personal maid. And um, these were things that you could throw in a washing machine and um, still look great wearing. So that's one of her um, great achievements, to the developing of the idea of separates. Um, separates were very, very confusing to um, stores, and they didn't know how to display them and how to sell them. So they really kind of had to be taught by the American designers who were figuring it out. Um, the other thing um, I'm going to I'm going to put I'm going to start thinking about this in terms of my um, Instagram. But mm-hmm. Claire McCardle's designs have been very influential to designers who have come since her, um, and you can really look at so many people's work and see that they were using the same kind of um, bias cut and halter necks and um, wrapped waists and bare midriff that she did. But what I'm really finding kind of interesting is that um, the designer who I think was most influenced by her was Halston. Mm. He did a number of things that, that copied her exactly. Um, one one was called the diaper bathing suit, and when Halston did it, it was on the cover of Time magazine, but it was a direct copy of her great 40s design. Um, it's an example of the 70s looking back at the 40s. There were several other wraparound um, bodices and his use of ties that go around the waist, so that's kind of interesting Walters. to me. Huh? And halters, right? Halters. Yes, yes, the halters and the very fluid, um, fluid long lines. Um, That's fascinating. I want, I want all of her things. <laughs> well, they're, they're also very flattering. She, she designed them so that they would, they would flatter more than just one type of person. Right. Brilliant. Mm. Seriously, I wish they had more of those, and I wish there were more brands that were doing, you know, using the same concept. I have, you know, so many women do not, it doesn't matter how much money they have, aren't interested in buying couture or even, you know, designer for every single day. And to find quality pieces at a certain price point these days is really, it's either, you know, maybe not the best quality or it's too expensive. So it's, it's hard to, to figure that out. Yeah, yeah those bubble bathing suits that she did were so cute. Do you like those? Because um, I'm, I'm a, you know, ultimately they're, they're kind of silly looking, but, um, <laughs> but um, um, the, any of the things she did that kind of had a bloomer bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny how many women relate to those because um, 
into the 1970s, people still had to wear bloomers as part of their gym uniforms at a lot of at a lot of girls' schools and women's schools. And um, bloomers go way back in American history, um, almost as what we would call a female empowerment item because they were worn by the early women's right activists in oh. the 19th century who were mocked for wearing them. Um, the first, the person who, the name comes from Amelia Bloomer in the 1850s who was trying to say, why do women have to go around in these huge crinoline skirts? They're not practical. You can't do anything in them. Um, and even though they were kind of mocked and criticized, they actually did start to be adapted for use wearing, doing active sports, which is something women had not done prior to the, to the mid-19th century. So as women started doing gymnastics and as there started to be colleges that women could attend, um, they became a part of the kind of sporting the sporting costume. Um, and um, for Claire McArdle to be riffing off that in so many of her designs for bathing suits and also for play suits, um, is, I think it's, I think she was making a deliberate kind of feminist point. But they look so playful, but they have that kind of meaning. That's sort of cool. Yeah, that's really cool. I didn't know about the meaning behind them. I know. It's always interesting for those in the know when you're wearing something like that and you know what it means. And some most people probably won't get it. And then some people definitely will. And it's like, mm -hmm. you know, oh, you're in the know too. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but I love those. Sometimes I like to be ridiculous with fashion because I just think <laughs> it's fun and it's a conversation starter. So I would most definitely wear any and all of those mm -hmm. bubble suits at the beach. Well, plus they also remind me of, of when your child is chatting yes. around in diapers, which is just one of the cutest, the cutest ages of, of, of life, the toddler age. <laughs> Absolutely. Or the little play suits, you know, that, yes. that, oh gosh, they're so cute. The little stair circle things. Okay. Were you smocking things for me, baby? Yes, but those wouldn't have been smocked necessarily. They would be like little, you know, checked little bloomers and a cute little top with a grosgrain ribbon trim or um, not that rickrack, something like that. Yeah. And a, and a little bit of a pinafore with bloomers underneath. I always love that look with rickrack. That's exactly what I was thinking. That's right. When did people stop buying investment pieces to wear for a lifetime? Do you think we will get back to that? A lot of that, I, I, I'm wondering, I'd like to know what y'all think will happen to Rent the Runway. I know that they've, um, I mean, there are other organizations that do the same kind of thing, but I know they're kind of regrouping. Sure. Um, and I know that the it's considered sustainable not to own something, but rather just to borrow it. But it also involves so much dry cleaning and spending and packaging and all the rest of it. So um I sort of see it's more sustainable to own something and wear it and have it be a part of your your look and your story. Oh, um, absolutely. And it's I, hard to predict. It is hard to predict. But I think designers struggle with that, too, because they feel like they need to be a part of Rent the Runway. But they right. get uh, they could get concerned about, you mm. know, when the piece goes out after it's been worn 10 times to somebody, right. the message that it's saying about their brand and everything. We, we definitely, you know, would rather see someone have some pieces that are really multifunctional and day to night and all of that and, you know, play with what you have rather than renting all these things. But it is complicated. You know, um, some people, let's say they're, they're going to Paris and they're, even if they're working, you know, with Vogue or something like that and they're young and they need to be stylish, but they don't have the money to have something every single day, they will literally order a wardrobe for the trip for fashion week, you know, and then turn it back in when they get back home. You know, I'm just wondering if you really looked at the money, if that, if that really saves money in the long run. Right. Oh, sure. Oh my goodness. That reminds me. I have this dress now. It's this velvet black dress that my mom wore when she was married to my dad. Mm -hmm. So eons ago, and now I wear it. It's an evening gown. So, you know, it has all these special memories. I think it means so much more than just like renting something for one night. That's kind of like a quick, easy fix. Yeah, I agree. I, we were talking a little bit more, uh, a little bit about that before of, of 
people I know who, who think, I hope my daughter wears this one day. Right. Um, was it really your wedding dress? No, it wasn't my wedding dress. It was this address that I got um, to go to somebody else's black tie rehearsal dinner. So it's, oh. it's a very classic dress, black velvet, deep V in the front, you know, pretty much just like a long, I guess you'd say slit. Sh- shift type dress with yeah. the slit up the side. So it's very demure, but it has the slit and it's beautiful lines and, you know, it's classic. It's something that you could wear in so many different ways and show off jewelry and, you know, those kind of pieces are, just like Lola Riccio was saying, if you take care of the material, if you take care of the piece, and that's another thing I think people think, well, it doesn't really matter if, you know, if I just throw this on the floor or, or if I burn it up when I'm ironing it, because I only spent spent 26 bucks. You know, when we see these headlines that say, I have 27 items in my cart and it's all under a hundred dollars. And I think I'm going to hit, you know, buy now or whatever. And you're like, and I just think, Oh my God. You know, when I go in that closet, I'll be going, you know, let her go, let her go, let her go, let her go. (laughs) You know, a whole closet full of these, $15 $15 shirts or whatever it's. We were hoping that after the pandemic and thinking that maybe people were going to be a little bit more thoughtful with their purchases. Obviously there's always that underlying financial issue in all of this, but that is something that we are big proponents of. Well, um, it, I don't think it's accidental that the dress that you've saved and that you both can enjoy is black because that is one of the <laughs> the little black dress or the black evening dress is one of the the most versatile things of all time and it really is a standout piece it's as simple as can be but it really is what do you think will be the near and not so near repercussions of covid-19 on our current fashion system and on how people dress do you think we're going to have this appetite for escapism like you talked about with the Hollywood glamour? Um, will it be more somber? Will it be seriously sweatpants? I'm always fascinated to know what people will look back on this period, you know, in history about and think they were all wearing tennis shoes, you know, sneakers, you know, that kind of thing. What are your thoughts? Well, the biggest thing they'll associate with this period is the mask. Um, How interesting. But, uh, Let's see. Um, I don't think, um, first of all, instead of sweatpants, I would say leggings, right? right. Are, people, mm-hmm. are people really wearing sweatpants? That, that seems. I think they were in March, but now I think they're in leggings. But I do think that um, the for working at home, uh, there should probably be the thought of a, um, a special top that can make that no one knows you have on leggings with. But um, what I'm noticing in Charleston, and it could be because it's kind of a tourist destination, is that uh, people are really getting dressed up just to be photographed in beautiful locations. And I think that's that's been going on on Instagram for some time now, Mm -hmm. um, dressing for the photo rather than for the event. Mm -hmm. the, The fantasy or the escapist element of of wanting clothes that are diversion, they might play into that, that um, um, you won't be wearing it to an actual um, (laughs) group of parties, but you'll definitely wear it and just get dressed up and go walk around a little bit and take photos. I mean, Mm -hmm. maybe that's more true of a pedestrian city than than a place you drive around. I don't know. What do you think? I don't know. I think think it's both. I think it's definitely pedestrian and definitely because Charleston has so many beautiful spots. But, um, but I do think people, I think when people go out to dinner, I think they're going to take like, I I think they're going to take special care and, you know, wear things that they haven't gotten to wear in a while, even if it's just with their uh, one friend or a husband sitting outside, you know, um, it, it, it will still, little things like that will become events. So well, I am noticing that here on Saturday nights, two times now, I see men in, in actually wearing neckties, which is kind of amazing when it's 91 degrees and it reads like 100, and lots and lots of really pretty dresses and high heels and um, 
um, people really making an effort it does not happen daily. <laughs> no, no, no. But then, you know, it's maybe it's going to bring back the joy and, you know, and, and feeling special and getting dressed just not so often, you know, it will become a pleasure instead of a chore. Yeah. And um, not so often is right. And also not, you don't need a crowd in order to do that. I think that's a good point that you made, even if it's just a couple of people make an effort. Right. Right. I think that's a good thing to, to talk about for sure. I know. It reminds me of when you were talking about, I don't know when, what the year was. They were at the Opera Garnier in Paris or the oh, yeah. Palais. Right. And they, you know, the whole introduction of showing off the, the <laughs> gowns and what the inside spaces started to look like and thinking about the back of the dress and all of that. Yeah, the, the couturiers in mid-19th century Paris really responded to the fact that the, there were these, these more lavish public spaces that people <laughs> were going in and out of. And when you went to the opera, if you didn't have a, a long bustle back and long train to your dress, then um, you couldn't really, you know, make a great entrance. And people really looked over the, the banisters at everyone coming <laughs> and going. You can't really do that, the standard red carpet, say, at the Met Gala, because right. the photographers are, they're all in the way. Um, and it's not really about the the actual human beings observing each other um, and moving through space. It's about all of us watching them on a screen. um, Or getting paid to get the photograph, right? And a lot of it was whether you managed your clothing well. So um, if you walked gracefully with a a train and if you could open your fan beautifully and, (laughs) and don't, don't, don't even get me started on pulling off your gloves in an elegant uh-huh. way. <laughs> I love that. Oh, I love that so much. I, well, you know, I tell people that too when I talk about these Zoom meetings and things, or if you have to go on a Zoom interview, you know, sit up straight, you know, you know, have a polished um, representation of yourself, you know, that kind of thing where you, these women took their time to take their gloves off. And I think a lot of people now, and maybe you mentioned that in one of those talks too, about, you know, there's this fine line between vanity and also um, putting forth your, you know, your best effort. A a lot of people want gloves to come back in a big way. Have you heard that? I would love that. (laughs) And when you, when you look at fashion photographs, particularly of the, the 1950s, I think, and, into the Jackie Kennedy years, they they really give so much polish to um, mm-hmm. an outfit. Oh, they do. That makes me think of like you know, church and the hats and the gloves and all that. My um, my father has a story about as a little boy. I guess it was like maybe I don't know, maybe junior high and high school and stuff. Standing at the window in the Metropolitan Club, looking out at the Easter parade with his parents. <laughs> You know, and now it's it's such a different type Easter parade, but that that yes. that vision of what that must have been like that would have been really cool to see. Yeah, you do see um, old news photos where it was almost like a European weddings are today. Men had on morning mm-hmm. morning coats and top hats, and mm-hmm. women were in dressy um, daytime clothes and hats. Um, that would have been fabulous. Yes, let's bring gloves back, definitely. I mean, none of us could have predicted that hats would become as as important in the past decade as they have. But um, the Central Park Conservancy luncheon has gone from 35 years ago, no one wearing a hat, to now, you know, the several thousand people who are attending. Well, not quite several, just 1,200, 1,500 are all wearing one. And then um, all the young royals wearing them to every event. Um, that that's a real surprise, but that's that's an example of um, a, adding an element of fantasy to your life without sort of mm-hmm. completely changing everything. <laughs> I think so too. That's a real, you know, boost. I think when people do something like that, they feel so glamorous and they feel like they've really stepped out on themselves. You know, they've really pushed the limits. You know, um, yeah, and people seem to like. Um, wearing a hat that looks like they push the limits too so um, <laughs> yeah, i mean that's yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, definitely 
That's they don't wear subdued ones. Right. Uh, and hats are very hard. You know, uh, you have to have a real commitment to um, mm-hmm. it, to buy a hat and store a hat. And mm-hmm. um, or I once tried to bring two hats back from London, and mm-hmm. the the steward came over to me and said, "You have to put those in the overhead." And I said, "Well, they don't fit." And he said, "I'll I'll take them then." And he came back to me and said your hats are going first class. Oh, I love it. And then I, and then he said, where are you going to wear them? <laughs> <laughs> that is so cute. That is so But cute. it was, I, I was, I, it was a fun moment where I thought, oh, I really need these hats, even though I have no idea how I'm going to get them back. It's true. I have these two fabulous Eric Javits sun hats and they're, one of them is very big. And one of those things, a a little bit ridiculous, but super fun. And I, you know, how in the world do I travel with it? I've tried to put it in my suitcase and now it's kind of dented because it got all (laughs) messed up. It's one of those hats. he makes a travel hat. You have to get one of the travel hats. Right. The squishy. I, I think but, it was, and I still messed it up. Well, this one is just great for, like, you know, photo shoots. It's so dramatic <laughs> and fabulous. But I brought a fascinator back from, like, the Cotswolds or something, from one of those, I can't remember those stores that they call, like, Sue Ryder. Do you remember that? In London, in England, it's like they're thrift stores for, you know, for charity or something, and they had this gorgeous ah. fascinator. But, of course, I... You know, I, 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 I'm embarrassed to say I really have never worn it because there's not too many, you know, too many occasions to. But um, I probably need it. Yes. I can find one. <laughs> well, I think you can do a social distancing fascinator um, drinks party. Oh, that would be <laughs> cute. No, that would be a great idea. I love that. I think everybody would love that. That's a grown-up way to dress up. Mm-hmm. So what do we think are going to be the near and not so near repercussions of COVID-19 on the fashion system? Like, for example, how we have gotten into this vicious cycle of newness and at least six collections a year and going to all these lavish places for the resort fashion show and mm-hmm. things like that. I don't know, because there's been such a, a, a sense of one-upmanship. Um, right. You almost wonder how anyone can keep finding the better location than anyone else has found and getting everyone on a, a ferry to go to it or whatever the, um, mm-hmm. and as you said, the, the outfits required to attend fashion, all the fashion weeks and um, the people who go to every single global fashion week, not being able to have a family life because they're mm-hmm. not at home. Um, who's going to be helping um their kids with their their zoom online courses <laughs> um although i guess they can do that from anywhere in the world um i think that te- technology is going to have to um come on in as it, it already has in so many ways and that the um, inventiveness is going to have to be in um virtual um experiences i think that the 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 fashion show itself is ultimately a, a rather limited occasion. It's a lot of effort to make for a very short um, right. amount of time. Right. And ever since the 70s, it was really Karl Lagerfeld for Chloe who started turning the runway into a kind of an art happening. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's quite possible that it'll have to return to a much more intimate experience, which was originally the case where um, a client was really looking at a few things with a designer or with the fitter um, or um, and that the creative things take place in terms of publications or movies or videos or, I mean, people say fashion, a fashion show should be theater. Um, one of the things I really long for from the going back to the turn of the last century through the 20s and 30s is that any old play that you saw on Broadway or in London or Paris or wherever had the most exquisite haute couture clothes, whether they related to what the characters were doing or not. <laughs> Everyone was wearing the, the most, the best clothes you could possibly get anywhere. I think it's such a good idea because why should they just be wearing street clothes? Why can't they wear mm-hmm. Alexander McQueen or 
Mm-hmm. Dior. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that would be a, a good a good trend. Yes, we on the Style That Binds Us show, our new talk show format that we launched on the Style That Binds Us YouTube channel, we spoke with Laura Lee Gayer, and she is a Broadway actress. And she, I asked her, what is your, one of your most favorite things about being a part of a Broadway production? And she said that the fact that getting to work with the costume designers and that you were wearing couture pieces and they were made perfectly for you and it's just beyond she was uh, she was one of the four leads in um the remake of holiday inn so she got to wear that era you know that's oh, great uh, <laughs> well, i think that's probably what she was what, yeah she thinking was about emma in emma right. so that would, yeah, be, that would be fabulous too, yeah. and all these fun characters that would that's mm-hmm. something that we must explore more right. if we ever Sure, probably. We'll be back. I know. It will be back in March. All right. So we talked about the runway. And then what I was thinking about, too, I want your opinion, if you care to give it, about the Couture Week that we just saw. The videos and, you know, the the experiences, the way they put them together. I know they had to do it kind of quickly, but I didn't feel like the, um, not even the reviews, but just the reactions of people experiencing them felt like, you know, maybe we have a, a ways to go before that gets figured out. <laughs> I don't know. I think um, I think that it it's easy to to not really care that much right at this moment. Right. So, um, and I can't decide personally whether whether things should be somber or whether they should be exciting. I mean, I morally. Mm-hmm. Is is this necessary right now? Right. Mm-hmm. So much is going on. So um, I'm, pro- I'm not the best person to um, right. give an opinion. Right. I mean, that's a that's a very good you know a thing to really put some thought into. I thought it was when I saw the um, the Dior what what they come up with that with the little uh, doll dresses. It made me think about you know in centuries past when I was explaining today about how the little miniature chairs and furniture would be taken around, you know, by um, craftsmen to sell their works. And I thought that would be so interesting if those dresses were actually shown to clients, you know? Yeah, they used to be. I mean, there were French fashion dolls who were, who um, you looked at what they were wearing and that's how you got a sense of the style. And then during world war two, there was an exhibition that originated in Paris of, um, I think they were 18 inch tall. They might've been more like 30 inch tall um, fashion dolls and all the couture houses, including Dior, made um, miniature outfits, their latest designs for them. And those, 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 they were really more like statues, statue, statuettes or mm-hmm. like puppets on a stand rather than sort of a doll. But um they um, toured, and so people could really look at them. And of course, in the Dior exhibits that have been in Paris and London and Denver and mm-hmm. um, Texas, I think uh, there have been. There, Dior has the House of Dior has made all those miniature models of so many of their iconic designs from the past. Have you? Did you see those? Because Dior might have been referencing the fact that they were already kind of mm-hmm. doing these these miniatures or people probably oh, really so. responded so. to the miniatures. Maybe so. We didn't get to see that exhibit. We got to see the, um, the Betty Couture one at the, I guess it's music. The YSL, yeah. Right. Music, you know, oh, YSL. that's great. So that was really cool. Did um, she, that, that's from her personal wardrobe. That's a, I like that museum. It's fun to go just to walk in and, oh and realize what it's like to be in his original couture house. I know, in his office. It is amazing. beyond. Y'all must yeah. go. The next the time you're audience. in Paris, Musée, Yves Saint Laurent, you must. Okay, I think it's in the 16th arrondissement. But I could be wrong about that. I and think it the, is too, but. Okay, good. <laughs> Did we decide what we think, how people will dress, if they're going to be super somber, if they're going to be, they just want to be loud and proud and fabulous? <laughs> Once we come out of lockdown, was well, everyone going to be the same? I don't know if there'll be. Um, no, it hasn't been um, consistency for a long time. So I think I think we're just going to have to 
it's going to be a personal mix and a broader mix. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And then do you think having an appetite for escapism through clothes is going to be more relevant than ever? Well, I think that, I think that beauty is something people crave. Mm-hmm. Um, and beauty and fashion is, is, sort of somehow seems more accessible at the moment than beauty in in mm-hmm. the visual arts or mm-hmm. uh right what do you what do you think i think it's um mm-hmm. just yeah. aesthetically um people really respond to not just to whether something looks um gorgeous but also the fact that someone made it and their handwork right. was fabulous and the amount of talent that goes into designing and creating the things that people wear um those are those are they just go back since mm-hmm. man evolved so i think it's just one of the most basic um desires is to appreciate um clothes and their power and um what they say about people's lives but also um what they say about the incredible artists who create them to begin with Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. oh my goodness yes so I think I had a I had set myself up to have a very fulfilling life before all of this happened and so I never really understood (laughs) the term of like you know needing to escape through tv that was just not something that I needed to do but then when I was in quarantine in the studio apartment for two months alone I understood that concept so probably that is escaping through clothes and watching movies glamorous movies we watched high society and we've been watching grace kelly movies and we're just like the whole time oh my the royal, god the royal tenenbaums too <laughs> you, did you watch charade with audrey hepburn i think we did yes that's I like the, that is one. that is that alfred hitchcock yes Yes, it's a mystery. I think I think we definitely did watch that one. That one, my family could see weekly. I think. Oh, absolutely, <laughs> the caper. And so, did we determine the runway? We, our opinion is that virtual is nice and it can solve a lot of problems. And during Fashion Week, it's always a Jewish holiday or something. It's always messing up something. But really you cannot replace the in-person experience and seeing the clothes. Virtual just doesn't 100% make the fix. So do we think that the runway going forward is going to be a thing and these for the fashion month and the resort and all of those things? Or do we think maybe runway isn't important enough anymore? Or maybe you feel like you already answered that. Well, what about once a year? Mm -hmm. I mean, why does it have to be... um, one fashion week blends right into the next, into the next, into the next. So what, I mean, wouldn't that be mm-hmm. a possibility? Yeah, that's a great idea. And women's wear daily this morning or either business of fashion, they were talking about they, the, um, IMG, is that who does the IMG? IMG sent out a questionnaire to all the New York designers that usually participate to ask them how they were feeling and did they want to take part and if so, how that was going to look. So, they're supposed to send in their answers by July 24th. I'm very interested in seeing how that. How yeah, that consensus would be very interesting to see. Mm-hmm. I know one of the positives that we have seen through this lockdown has been designers talking and collaborating and trying mm-hmm. to fix everything, you know, instead of thinking, having community over competition mm-hmm. and all of that. There's enough for mm-hmm. all of us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because in the past, it's definitely been competition right. <laughs> over, and, over and, everything else. Right. And and young designers will say to us, you know, I'll, I'll come to your podcast to listen to what other designers are, are, are doing because it's a very lonely, um, you know, career sometimes. They, so hopefully that, that might be something that changes. Right. Yep. It should. Tell us about your Instagram, Jupe Coulotte. Jupe means skirt in French. And we are really enjoying the content. So tell us all about that. Um, well, a Jupe Coulotte is the um, split skirt that uh, when it first emerged in the early 
early 20th century was so scandalous that it was um, front page news around the world. Wow. And people, it happened in Paris at the races. One of the things I love about um, the earliest street fashion photos is that way, way, way before Bill Cunningham, there were all these roving photographers, particularly in France, but elsewhere, who um, would go to the, the horse races, which were um, very, very popular um, activities. And um, all the haute couture houses would send models to the races wearing their latest outfits. And so, uh, uh, you know how any event is, it's all about being seen and seeing. Mm -hmm. So you, you look at these great early photos and some of, the, some of the people are standing on chairs with their binoculars so they can actually see the race, mm -hmm. but everybody else is looking at the outfits. Right. And, um, so um, it's, it's in dispute who really did the first shoot culotte in this context, but um, um, the person who got the credit for it was Paul Poiré, who was the, the, the first really great designer of the 20th century to emerge. Um, and he sent a woman in a split skirt to the races and she, she apparently was attacked. I mean, that's how, that's how strong the reaction was to seeing a woman in a bifurcated garment in, out in, um, in public. And um, it, it, it took about another 50 or years before pants were completely accepted. We have to go back to the 1970s, which is really when they started being worn in public for all kinds of occasions, including for work. Um, throughout, the, you know, after Paul Poiré, you have people wearing beach pajamas, but only at the beach, or lounging pajamas, but only at home. So um, the history of women wearing pants in public is full of ups and downs. And, um, <laughs> but it's, you know, it says a lot about changing perceptions of women's roles and whatnot. So when I was setting up my, I'm sorry, I'm so long winded. No, you're not. My Instagram, I wanted to just throw a fashion term out there so I wouldn't have to have, you know, have it be about my, me or my yeah. name or what have you. So that was what I picked. And, um, I love it. I it's not like jupe culottes are my favorite things in the world, but if I, <laughs> if I had to think of what my favorite thing was, I'd still be sitting here trying to come up with it. It's too difficult. I remember when I was in elementary school, I can't remember what grade it was that, you know, we got to start wearing pants. Oh, at my school, we, I mean, we, we, we could pay 25 cents once, once a year to wear pants as a, as a, as a fundraising um, event. But oh, other so no pants. So <laughs> I was a girl, girl, a girl school in the restricted south of my youth. That is so crazy. Well, we we will definitely have um, the information about the Instagram account because I think people will really find it fascinating. So, what's next for you? Oh well, um, let me just say that I think Instagram is um, an incredible resource in general for fashion history and. It has made me so aware of how interested people are globally and um, how intense that interest is and how knowledgeable the average person is. So it's, mm -hmm. been, it's been so terrific to encounter this community of people who, um, some of them are only interested in fashion history, others are interested in all kinds of other areas, but, um, it's a fun community. Mm -hmm. um, coming up next is, um, I, I, I really feel for everyone who's, who's been involved in a museum exhibition that's been postponed this year because um, it's, you, you work so hard on pulling awesome. something together and then no one gets to see it. But um, I, I wrote an essay for a catalog for an exhibit that's going to be opening now in October at the Cooper Hewitt in New York. And it's um, the rediscovered archive of the, the artist who made all the original designs and prints for the original Lily Pulitzer. Wow. So it goes back to this early 60s up through about 1985. And um, her name is Susie Zuzek and um, her designs are incredible. And they really, it is fantastic that they've been rediscovered. So um, the exhibit will show her actual fabrics and um, her working, the sort of working paintings that she made that were used to have them be printed. They were all printed in Florida. And um, my essay is about the importance or 
the impact of the Lily Shift dress and what it meant in America in the 60s. Oh, that's wonderful. And we will definitely be there. We will definitely yeah, it's going to, it should be a lot of fun. It would have been so fun to have it um, happen sure. all during the summer, but um, it'll be great when it does open. It will be so, so great. We have a friend, Jane Winchester. She is a jewelry designer and she makes coins and she was the creative director of Lily Pulitzer for 10 years or something. So we need to tell her yeah, about that. We'll have that. to tell her about that. And sure, her family is the Winchester Arms family. Which oh, really? Is, yeah. I was reading, I'm reading this, maybe a little George, some English, you know, mystery right now and set a while back and they talk about Winchester Arms. So. Oh my goodness. So people have such interesting stories. You know, I think that, oh, yeah. that we're really finding out about during this time of, you know, of uh, taking a pause. And yesterday we attended a webinar with the mm -hmm. Hermitage Museum in Hermitage. Russia and oh, really? the Louvre. Mm -hmm. And they were talking about the Leonardo da Vinci exhibit, which, oh, we did not get to go because it was like the last two days was our first two days there and we could not even catch a breath to do anything during fashion week but that exhibit took 10 years so thankfully that ended right as the louvre was going to close for covid oh, but 10 yeah. you know what you're That's talking, what you're about, talking about, about the museum exhibits they take so long and all of the ones and now all the four museums are having to switch up their calendar and things are supposed to travel and it's just a mess. The 150th anniversary of the Metropolitan Museum. I know. Yeah, I know. The whole year practically. Right, right, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> oh gosh. Well, hopefully things will just be a little delayed, but they will happen and they'll be even more special. Yeah, really. Um the you you can go into a museum here. Um ah. I think of I mean I think of, of all the things that should be open, libraries and museums are places where people um, behave themselves in general. I mean, True. they're very respectful of the spaces. So you would and think people sh people would have been able to be in those spaces before now. Um, but right, 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 right. We got to get some money to support the arts too. Okay, so where can people find you? We've mentioned at um, Jupkulat. Yeah, Jupkulat is really the best. Um, okay, that's that's. Um, I, I find that's how people communicate so easily through Instagram. Yes, that's great. Now that they know too, if they know your name, they would, you know, they might not necessarily know that's where they could find you. So that is wonderful. And then your books, do you have a link on your Instagram to your books or do they go to Amazon or? I think that would be too, pro too professional if I had a link. <laughs> um, no, I, um, uh, I imagine that, um, I mean, books are easy to find. I buy books every day. <laughs> right, right, right. Yes, for sure. So we're going to have links to the books in the description to all of Oh, well, thank you. Yes, we will. And then we'll also have a shoppable blog post. So, well, shoppable, not really, but I'll link to all the books in the blog post mm -hmm. with this episode. Yeah. Oh, well, thanks. Thank On you. the Style That Binds Us website, stylethatbindsus.com. <laughs> oh, Caroline, we have so many different mediums and platforms, ways that we communicate, but hopefully it all makes sense. Thank you so much for your fabulous insights and this lovely conversation. Well, thank you. It's been fun to, to meet all today. I know. Well, we can't wait to meet you in person. That's right. It'll happen at some point. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly right. Maybe it'll be at the Cooper Hewitt in October. October. It will. It must. Okay. Good idea. Have a great weekend. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Bye. If you like what you heard, tell a friend about our show. Subscribe to our podcast. And also scroll to the bottom and give a rating and or a review. Those are the best ways for other people to find out about our podcast. See you next time. Bye.